0: Spotify did an amazing picture about this. People think that the way to build a car is first you build the wheels, then you build the base part of the car, then you build some seats, then you build the uh, the whole thing and then now bam bam you have a car. The way you build a car is you build a skateboard, then you build a bike, then you build a car. So like first you say like I build a skateboard, I can do that. Like look like we we just generated more electricity than put in. It is a very funny situation we did it in, but it look there's more out than in, right? Yep. People are like you prove the hard part. Sourcing steel? Trust you complete. So I think that there are many problems that actually can be solved that we don't think about as potential.
1: Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, a podcast making creators, entrepreneurs, and idealists in the deep tech space accessible by highlighting their stories and putting their ideas from the lab into the real world. My name is Philipp Sturmer, and with me today, Hampus Jakobson. General Partner at Climate Fund, Pale Blue Dot, and Investor of the Year 2019. This is the second part of how he started his own fund after being an angel investor after selling his startup to Blackberry. In the last episode, we explored Hampus' journey from mandatory military service to university, where they started their company with the sole goal of not working for a big corporate entity. Throughout this time he experienced a lot of paradigm shifts, learning that not only can he solve problems he thought he wouldn't be able to, but also being able to define the problem to begin with, even when there are plenty of more experienced people around him. These paradigm shifts continue after selling their company to Blackberry, something that puts him on the path of eventually starting the early stage climate fund Pale Blue Dot
0: the mobile market was like in a massive situation where it was shifting from dumb phones to smartphones. And it was like this huge challenge of like, we were trying to position where this company we were building, because we were essentially empowering dumb phone manufacturers to compete uh, with each other and starting to compete with smartphone manufacturers. They were very new, of course, the smartphone manufacturers, yeah. so they were very nascent. Suddenly we were beamed up in this and like, we were sitting there and just like, whoa, like this is actually how it works. We kind of knew how it worked. And suddenly we we're sitting in the tower and we're like, oh my God. And like, First of all, like we could split up the, like the genome and we could be whatever we wanted. And number two is like, we could actually be in this tower with these amazing people. No. Yep. And hey, they want to pay us $150 million to join the tower. We're like, is this like, you want to pay us to join Gryffindor? Like, are you crazy? Um, so we did that. And then suddenly what happened is like, they asked me to run part of M&A for them, to help me acquire the companies. And it was completely crazy for me because I grew up thinking deep thinking and science changes the world well that's how i grew up and then like entrepreneurship and getting shit done and like building teams and coding everything changed the world and then suddenly somebody says like you can acquire stuff like money changes the world and for me it was like i I, i'm fairly like anti-capitalistic in some ways and i was like i I don't think so i don't really like this i don't like the idea that we could say we want to buy this for 10 million or 100 million it just feels super weird but then suddenly i realized this is such a cool situation uh cool situation because the thing with science is science is very bottom up. Like you make stuff possible and technology, yeah. like you, you enable stuff. And then in entrepreneurship, you pick stuff and you like, you choose. You say, I take this thing and I build this thing. And then with capital, you essentially give it like rocket speed. And I realized, whoa, this is part of the empowering system of solving problems at all. And that meant that through those two and a half years at, at BlackBerry, I started angel investing on the, and then continued angel investing. And essentially because I realized that I want to learn about this problem, whatever it is. Um, I don't have time to go into the science or the deep thinking and understanding it. I sadly don't even have the time to build a company about it. No. But I could angel invest and I can hang out with you and I can talk to you about it. And you were like, are you kidding me? Are you a curious investor that wants to learn and respect me and you'll give me money? <laughs> uh, and it was a great symbiosis for me. So I ended up investing in 100 plus companies and a couple of other things. And it was great because I got to learn and, and I loved it. And I thought it was super interesting. And I think that what made me a quote unquote good investor uh, is that I was highly empathic of the founder situation, but also that I was actually wanted to understand and learn. So I was, I I invested in people not so they could multiply my money. I invested because I wanted to co-solve the problem with them and understand and help them, which meant that I was one of the nicer, most understanding, <laughs> most available investors you could find. Yep. Uh, and then one day um I get I get a call from the the VC the investor that invested in one of the companies that I that I acquired at Backberry so he called me out of nowhere saying hey Jason remember me and I was like yeah 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 absolutely yeah, yeah. we acquired a score loop from you I remember like we I negotiated with you. that was great so we're doing this event in Berlin and I want you to come and I was like I'm really sorry Jason like I'm like thanks a lot this is super cool you're calling thanks a lot but like I'm a I'm not super pro VCs like I think that VCs are kind of you know they're the you know, the colonialist of the 21st century. Like, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Totally agree. With you. We're different. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My music is different. It's not rock. It's not alternative. It's not indie. It's completely new, right? And we were bantering and joking back and forth and had a great time. And he said, yeah, you should come. And it's like, what's about? He said, it's called Decentralized and Encrypted. I was like, yeah. Whoa, I know a company you should talk to though. He was like, yeah, i always interested. What's, what company? It's like they're uh, they're super cool. They actually build uh, distributed CDNs, content distribution networks. Like mm-hmm. how do you actually store data in in on the internet to make it accessible instead of making it centralized to make it decentralized? That's amazing. I really want to talk to them. Yep. I was like, yeah, that's great. So I call up the founders, uh, Anna and Dennis, and I said, hey, I'm at this fund, and they said, like, yeah, the problem with Europe is nobody understands this. And the CEO Anna, she's a female founder. And, and, like, if you're a female CEO founder at a tech company, I mean, you're the scum of the earth. Like, nobody thinks you have anything. So, like, she was like, I don't want to talk to European VC because they're complete idiots about this p- topic because CDNs is not a European phenomenon. It's a Californian phenomenon. No. And number two, like, you know the situation. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, their event is called Decentralized and Encrypted. It was, she was like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for always having my back, always believing me at but I'll do my best. And yeah. I was like, yeah, go ahead, Anna. It's going to be great. Like... Don't look at yourself that way, kind of level. I'm like, oh, the system is against her. She called me back two days later. It's like, Hempus, mm-hmm. Jason and your team, they're amazing. I was like, what's her? They're investing in us. I was like, what? They're investing in us and they're inviting us in this crazy event in Berlin. I was like, what? They're investing? They were the smartest, nicest people. Like, they were just so amazing. Holy shit. Not only did they get what, what Anna and Dennis are doing, which is really complicated, but number two, they saw through the like or ignored or whatever you want to call the fact that she's a female CEO at a tech company. Like, they, it was, I was just like, Whoa! No, the bar is very low, but I did get like whoa respect, like that's amazing. Um, so I was like, what? Well, well, interesting. And then it's like the event seems to be cool. So I called back Jason. It's like, hey Jason, what's this event? Like the and like how about Anna. That's great. And she's like, amazing company. I love them. Love them. Love them. We're giving them a term sheet. I was like, that, that's that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, I like them too. They're super smart. What's the event? Is it is decentralized and encrypted? Like yeah. Um, cool. And I was like, I don't know if I want to come. I don't want to go to Berlin. Like this just feels too much. He said, we should tell him to come. Tell me a bit more about it. Well, it's a betting at nation states. I don't think we can trust nation states anymore. Like they can invade other countries. They can spy on their own people. I was like, are you a VC fund? I was like, yeah, absolutely. We think the problem is that the power, the hegemony is too central. I was like, this sounds like super interesting stuff, like how the world works. Nope. And not like, how do you build like an online shop for Asian makeup? What's the event? Yeah, the first speaker is Edward Snowden. I was like, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> like, this is it. Like, I'm coming. I'm like, where is it? Yeah, you should come. Give me the address came down it was an old carpet factory in east berlin everybody's like a super hipster shaved their one part of their head they're tattooed they're like their hair is magenta peak berlin i come down in a dress shirt <laughs> so like i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty uh i'm unique at the event um i didn't have a i'm really happy i didn't have a suit uh because like i think the wrong in the mobile world the mobile wears a suit world anyways came down And this whole event is filled with these amazing crazy people that are building the future of the internet like decentralized and everything. And this is before like the whole crypto quote unquote bubble. So it was like the crypto was very much like a new, it was like what today we're calling like web three. It was like, how do you actually build a new infrastructure layer for information and internet? And they were not talking about coins or tokens or, or ICOs, they were actually saying like, how do we actually rewire? Because the internet is decentralized at its yeah. base, but it's like, it's actually become more and more centralized. Everybody from Airbnb to like Cisco, like everything is too centralized. We have to decentralize the internet. And like that is like into democracy and everything. And I was just standing there, this is, this is amazing. They're talking about rewiring the world. Mm. And there were three people sitting in the front of this big event who were taking notes like crazy. Those were Chad, Kieran, and Bjork. So like I saw three venture capitalists that not only were throwing off an event that was about how to change the world for real, yep. but they were sitting there taking notes, which sounds like a, something not strange, but most VCs, they don't take notes. Most VCs come in, they brag about how they were a the board member of Airbnb where they weren't. And these people did the hard work. And I was like, this is, and they talked to Anna and they invested, I spent a couple of days in Berlin and they asked me if I want to join them. And I joined them. And the cool thing is like, this is again one of those moments where I was like, I thought the VC invested in stuff that was like, how do you print money on, you know, lazy shit? That was not super needed. What if we can say that we want to build the future? No. Again, back to what the thing that I started opening on uh, being an angel investor, I thought that what I did as an angel investor is like I empowered people that I wanted to empower independent of gender and race and ethnicity and religion to build stuff that were for people that most people didn't care about. And I was like, I love this. This thing's super interesting. I actually think this is like really irrelevant. And suddenly I was working with people who were saying, how do we rewire the internet? How do we create energy in abundance? How do we create a world that we can trust? And I was like, the three things I am deeply worried about is climate change, it's trust in institutions and people, and it's inequality. No. And here I'm in a forum where those are things we invest in. I'm suddenly in this room of the Gryffindors, where, again, where people seem to care about the things I'm caring about and we're empowered by the greatest magicians in the world, venture capital and entrepreneurs and science. Again, the triad of the three, amazingness. We can just say, we want to fix this thing. And like, we can ignore politics. We can just say, hey, I know that like, you know, this doesn't exist or like this is going to be an issue that like within politics, but let's just build something and enable it. We actually have to build stuff. I think you just have to build the future you want. And it was so amazing because then suddenly there, it just like subject after subject. I was like, I want to look at how we're reprogramming life. And like Kieran and Jason, they were like,
1: Sure. Go
0: ahead. And like built this event and it was super amazing. I really loved it. And uh, we we got Emmanuel Charpentier as a speaker, and it was a year before she got the Nobel Prize. And suddenly, just like days before she was coming, we realized that Emmanuel Charpente is not an amazing speaker on her own. She she's kind of she's amazing, super brilliant and super smart and super nice, but she's not the typical keynote speaker. Yeah. So it was like somebody has to have a fireside chat with it. It's like, can somebody interview her on stage? And then Jason and Kieran said, Yeah, great, like you do a tempus. I was like, I can't interview like one of the most famous professors in the world of genetics of doing CRISPR. When like I, uh, and then I realized I have to. So just crunched all of like genetics and CRISPR and tried to understand it while building this event, which was so good because suddenly I actually started to understand. Whoa, this is actually how stem cell reprogramming actually works. Or this is actually how CRISPR works. Or this is the risks of this and that. And I got to interview Emmanuel on stage, and she was amazing.
1: How 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 far did you go in that? Did You just just cover the the surface layer or the books, or actually go full into Papers and university literature.
0: My method is usually filters through people. So I believe I really like the method of like if I talk to you and I ask you, what are the biggest things in the subject? And then I say, what's the thing that most people don't understand the subject or or, or, or misconceive? Then I get 80%. I kind of, they explain it to me. And after a while, I like that. Now I feel like I get it. And then I say, thank This is amazing. Can perfect. I explain it to you? Yeah. And then I explain it to you. And you say, wow. Well, you're 60% there, and then we do it one more time, and you help me correct it, and I try it again. You're like, you're 98. You're not. Nine, this is good. And then the thing I do next is ask them. Um, so what do most people don't understand about this, or what's the big misconception? And then they tell me that, and I was like, oh, why is that? Okay. And then I say, what's next? Like, what do you think is going to be the big challenge? What's the big breakthrough? What's the big unknown? And then they go completely speculative. They're like, well, <laughs> I'm a professor in this subject. Like, if we would solve this, and I was like, oh, interesting. And then they tell me that, and now suddenly I have a lot of questions. So if they've done a couple of these interviews, I can go to the next person and said what do you think would happen? And then after interviewing them, I ask them, who else should you talk to? And they say, oh, Maria, Heinrich, they're the best. Yep. So they're like, Could you introduce me? And like, of course, of course, of course. Yep. Um, and the same thing when I do an event. I just want to ask people, what's the thing that you think is the headache? And then do that. During 2019, um, I suddenly started getting this feeling when I met these amazing, interesting teams one by one. I suddenly got this thing where like it felt like when you're tasting unsalted food, like some of these teams I met, but it was like, it was not there and I couldn't find what was not there. Something's missing. I'm not getting the enthusiasm, the passion I, in my body when I talk to this brilliant person. And I didn't know why. And I talked to Kieran and Jason about it, of course. And they said, yeah, this is the life of venture capitalists. There's ebbs and flows. Sometimes you feel excitement, sometimes you don't. And then i like, you know, week after week went. And I was like, I've never been in this situation where I've not been curious and not excited. Like I'm excited when I wake up. I'm curious when I wake up, mm-hmm. like constantly. So I was like, ah, well, I, I think I'm going to break apart. And then I suddenly one of these companies I met, they did something in climate. And it was like, wow, maybe my fear of climate change has gone so lo- so big in my mind that that's the only thing I feel like it actually gets my juices flowing. Mm-hmm. So then I said to Kieran and Jason, could I build an event about climate change? And they said, "Yeah, that's amazing." Right. So I started pinging people and because I'd done quite a lot of cool events and the events were, I, honestly, I'm really happy about the events. They were all like invite only hundred people. Like, so they were not like big fanfare events with stages and keynote speakers. It was like, you get the opportunity to be in a room with the other Gryffindors if you yeah. want. So people were, like, holy shit. The first time was hard. But then event after event, people have heard like, oh, I get invited to the Blu-ray events to speak. Are you kidding me? And uh, I want to come or like, I don't have to speak. I can sit and listen happening. So I started inviting people to this climate event. And of course I did the same thing. What's the thing you are about? And like, oh, how do we do solar radiation management or global north, global south? Or what do we do about droughts? And started talking to people. And just when I talked to those, I just felt so much energy and so much enthusiasm and so much joy. And also kind of, some, I started feeling that I had spent so much time almost avoiding reading about this because every time I read it, I just felt fear and sadness and everything. And suddenly I felt, I can spend all of my waking time reading about this and not feel shit about it. No. It, I don't feel good about drought, but I feel like if I understand drought, I can maybe be part of solving it. Yeah, definitely. So suddenly it felt so empowering and so, and so amazing. And then building this event, I started realizing during that spring, I actually don't want to spend any time with anybody else that is not doing this at all, period. No. Um, so that, like suddenly one day Jason said, I think you should start your own fund. I think we said this already when you joined, remember? And I was like, yeah. He was like, no, but seriously, remember we said it the first month, you're going to start your own fund. And I was like, i'm not gonna start my fund it's like think about it you should do a fund you should do a climate change fund and i was like yeah yeah it's its own fund like i just felt like it was so amazing to not be responsible anymore like the thing when like you build a company is like every single complaint from a customer or from an employee or anything it ends up with you like you're the bottleneck like, for everything when you're an angel investor you're not you're suddenly free so like the so suddenly i was in this situation where i felt like i start my fund shit I'm gonna get married to everything I do again and that's the thing I'm so happy I could avoid now for like you know almost 10 years yeah. um but then I like the more I thought about it it felt like yeah and then Heidi and Newell and I Heidi and Newell did uh they did a micro fund here in Malmo where they sourced companies and helped them create like uh, get them to kind of from super early stage to pre-seed or seed and uh like we worked together quite
1: a lot and and really enjoyed it I really enjoyed them and they were super smart because I never properly looked into it um, and I would assume many people also don't know what what are the kind of different stages.
0: What happens when you raise money is like typically you start out by like, super crazy early, and you don't have a team, you don't have a problem, you don't have a solution, you don't have a market, you don't have anything. Like you have an idea, you have like maybe not even an idea. Maybe you're saying we want to work together. Maybe you say we want to work for the man. <laughs> like maybe okay. that's where you're. <laughs> maybe you have an idea. Maybe you have a maybe you actually have a solution, but you don't know what problem. So like there, there's like a completely blank canvas stage and the state. And then you're starting to kind of formulate something. And in that first period, you can go to friends, fools and family or angels, whatever. And you can say, hey, you know me, I used to work for you. Yeah. And these first people are essentially saying, you're great. Like, I love you. This is amazing. But they kind of have to understand that maybe you're going from methane to doing, you know, selling shoes online. They're investing in the person. They're investing totally in the person. Exactly. And the problem is like some people don't. Some people invest because they think they're going to make money, but they should not. They should just say, I trust you. Here's money. It's amazing. Let's go. So yeah. like, that's, that's about what they can expect. And that what they should build is they should build a relationship of like a friend and they should get to know them. And it's kind of like they being the, the investor uh, at yeah. the angel like, or the whatever, who's giving you money. So I think that it's super important that when you do that first stage, you should accept that you lose the money. Uh, but like, you should think that maybe I get to help a person or maybe I get to learn something myself. That's it. And then you get to the next stage, which is like the precede stage. And now you have a team. Uh, you probably have some kind of hunch where you want to go. You probably don't have a solution, uh, but you now it's not the time to change the idea from methane to selling two shoes online. So in this preceded stage, if you shift to selling shoes online, that's not ideal. No. Uh, and if you shift that you throw out half of the co-founders and somebody wants to do something else and one joins McKinsey, that's also kind of shitty. But if you shift around kind of what you how you want to like what you want to solve, And definitely how you want to solve it, like, go ahead. Like, that's like what the game is for. Or you can actually have a situation where you know how you're solving something, but you actually don't know what to solve. So you have like this amazing chatbot technology that can generate text, but you're building like something for salespeople. But then maybe you can actually do it to generate uh, like reports for police or or, like help judges understand cases. Like you don't actually know. But the thing in this first stage, when you're doing the first super early round, is like you, you as an and as an entrepreneur, you have to be super transparent of like, I don't really know, right? No. And like this is where we are. And you should just update people that how little you know. And you, you're as an entrepreneur, you should actually focus on learning. Like every week you should look at what you learned, not like how many customers or anything. You should like, what did we learn? And then this pre-seed phase, you're kind of shaping this embryo of something that's moving forward in the trajectory And you're still learning a lot, but now you're starting to cut off opportunities. And then the seed stage, you're at a you're at a stage where you have enough proof that this quote unquote works, but the economy of it doesn't work. Like, the, like you probably, you spend a way more money than you're making. But your hypothesis is number one, you can change that to that you put in 80 cents to get a dollar and some cents yep. over time because you make the product better. And number two, as you scale, 80, like 20 cents that you get every time you sell a necklace is nothing, but you think that you can sell a million necklaces per minute. So like that, a lot of necklaces, not a necklaces, exactly. So, but now you're at a stage where you essentially are borrowing money um, to do two things: to do product development, so you can change it from it cost a dollar to make a dollar and a fraction to it cost only eighty cents yep. to make a dollar and a fraction. And number two, you want to scale the number of necklaces or whatever you're doing to a size where that twenty cents margin actually means a lot. Um, so you want to both improve the product and improve the size of the of the sort of the market or your customer base. And that's your essentially borrowing money. If you're not borrowing it, you're getting an investment. They they end up buying part of your company for no. that. Uh, but like you're not selling them money. You're selling them we think that we can scale the margins and scale the size of this, so that makes sense. And when you get to the A round, the A round is the round where everything works. Like you show that we put in a dollar, we put in 80 cents, we get a dollar back. No. Like, look, look, like we get it, we get we get a dollar back every point. But the thing is, like, we're we're only putting in half a million we're putting in a hundred thousand dollars a month so i mean we're making twenty thousand a month and we're 12 people so like twenty thousand dollars a month doesn't help us a lot right but that's what it is so like now we're saying now we want to throw in a million dollars per month into this machine because that means we would make two hundred thousand a month and then the product team they think they can move this to actually making 30 percent margins uh so that's what you're kind of doing but like now you're at a point where it works like you're putting in the money and you're getting money back it is like now you just want to scale the shit out of it yeah and then b round c round d round everything else essentially just scale more scale more scale more scale okay Uh, so like the stages are very very different it's like like the thing is really what risk are you moving but also what opportunity like is there actually like the thing is that when you're doing the first thing sky's the limit like there's probably nobody doing it and there's like maybe impossible and when you're at your b round and c round there's probably quite a lot of competition So now it's the question about moats and how you build defensibility and how you scale with price, Mm -hmm. what's usually in our world called burn multiples. So how much money do you put in? Do you put in a million to get a million and a fraction back? Or you put in hundred thousand, to get a million back. That's like very interesting because that means how efficient you can be at scaling. And I think that when you get to a certain stage, the reason that when people say, how big is a seed round? How big is a pre-seed round? How big is an A round? How's a B round? The thing is in the early stages, it's kind of the how big is the friends, fools and family round? Well, I mean, how wealthy friends do you have? There's some kind of thing that like, I don't think people should raise more than like half a million euros. Cause there's a point when it's like, there's just too many, like not only like they are taking money that you might not like, you know, shouldn't take. But the other thing is like, the thing is that this is one of those things where it's a relay race. The next round is going to be a certain size. And if you take too much money and have too evaluation, the next round is going to be super strange. It's like, you, you come to the next round, the seed round, people want to invest like one to 3 million euros. And if you have raised two million to get there, like... Yeah, you are not going to get far. Probably. You're like, you're going to give you three more million to do equal to what you just did. That's not what's going to happen. So you mean, oh no, we need 12 million, but they're saying, no, but the risks are too high. You haven't proven enough. We can't keep part with 12 million for this. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, you kind of, that also means what kind of problems you can solve. So there's certain problems that you just can't solve
1: unless you have very wealthy friends and unless you're Elon Musk. But when you, when you did an event for nuclear, quantum, crypto and stuff, everything yeah. that is very long-term and hardware and difficult compared to making online shop selling shoes yeah they tend to cost a lot of money yes um so you is there a higher margin for there are two things i think that i
0: think that if you put in more money the opportunity has to be big if if there's like it's very simple sadly it's like risk uh, and opportunity right it's like high risk and return right exactly so if somebody's saying i'm think i can make I think I can make fertilizer a dime cheaper with this thing that's going to cost 400 million. The thing is it's 400 million. You're saying you're going to make fertilizer, which is a very large market, a dime cheaper, which is quite okay in fertilizer, but it's not amazing, right? Question is do you like it's super early. Do you think do, you, do I think you can make it 50% cheaper or actually probably maybe 10 only? So like first that's risk, right? And then, and then the other problem there is like you're going to sell a commodity, a fertilizer, which means that there's going to be crazy competition of other like, ways of doing fertilizer. It's no. not the only one way. So now the problem is like you're in a situation where you need a ton of money until you're proven. And then number two is like the market you're after, maybe the margins aren't as great as you want. And number three is the, the, there's a cutthroat competition. So those things are very, very hard. But if you say, I'm going to make a fusion reactor, we can create free, non pollutive energy. You're like, that's, that's infinite. Yes how much money we need. I think we need 5 million to prove that it works. And after 5 million, we need to build a nuclear reactor. Like we need to build a fusion reactor and that's going to cost us 500 million dollars. Yep. But then you realize, well, after the 5 million, you can go to a country. Like you can go to somebody who's not insightful and say, look Ma, I can fly. Yep. And I think that's the thing. It's like you have different kinds of levels. You have the first level which you have the founders. The founders are saying, I think this works. They have conviction. And then your second level, we have the signal where somebody who's smart can say, this is how you know if fusion works. So, like, I know that you scientifically went far enough that you make it work. No, you don't have a nuclear reactor, but I see that with my insight, with my background, with my belief and conviction about this, I see that you've proven enough that this works. And then in the next level, we have data about it, where you're generating more electricity than you're putting in. So, like, whoa, 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 whoa. you have a fusion reactor, albeit very small (laughs) and very complicated, but, like, you have a fusion reactor. And then you have the last level, which is common knowledge, where, like, the Guardian writes, you know... Bob builds nuclear reactor and yeah. it works and it you know, generates energy for Massachusetts. That's like when it, there's no risk anymore. And that's when you're on the public market where people are saying, do we think Bob and Anna can keep scaling their fusion reactors to all of Canada and North America? Or do we think competition is going to be too steep? That's where we price it on the market. No. Um, so the thing is there, it's like, it's really about figuring out problems where the reward is big enough and the risk is, of course, as too low as possible. As low as possible. But then the interesting thing is it's also about figuring out what risk you want to remove. So like, sometimes you can think about like, so is the problem with building a fusion reactor, is it about how do you source enormous amount of really high quality steel? Then you should probably solve that. And the problems like most people do is they think that it's the classical, it's Spotify did an amazing picture about this. People think that the way to build a car is first you build the wheels, then you build the kind of the base, base part of the car, then you build some seats, then you build the, uh, the whole thing. And then now, bam, bam, you have a car. The way you build a car is you build a skateboard, then you build a bike, then you build a car. So, like, first you say, like, I have a little I can do that. Like, look, like, we, we just generated more electricity than I put in. It is a very funny situation we did it in, but it look, there's more, in that, there's more out than in, right? Yep. People are like, you prove the hard part. Sourcing steel? Trust you complete. So, I think that there are many problems that actually can be solved that we don't think about as potential. Back to, like, you know, what I found layers in my own world is you have the first layer, which is scientifically show it. Like, can you actually prove this works? And then you have the next level problem, which is the engineering entrepreneurship problem, which is like, can you build a thing? And that's a whole other problem. And then there's a third problem to solve, which is like the financial scaling problem. And the funny thing about this is this is not risk levels. There are, of course, risk levels, but there are also different startups. So like you can look at a problem, which is like, you can say, we, what we do is we build an insurance company for nuclear companies. That's a, that's a problem that's going to come, right? Like the, the thing with nuclear today is nuclear is owned and insured by countries. Because no, no, like no, military, you have the military. If it goes bad, it goes terribly bad. Exactly. So like no single, you know, commercial entity wants to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll insure that nuclear reactor. <laughs> They're like, no, that's the death of your insurance company. Yep. So the thing is that one of the big headaches is like, when we're going to deploy nuclear, does that mean it's only going to be national nuclear? Maybe that's fine. But it's interesting to think about, well, how do you do that? Or maybe you do a company, what the only thing the company does is to do a software for planning where to put nuclear reactors. Because you, your thesis is that there are going to be so many small modular nuclear reactors in a country that one of the big headaches is where you plan them and place them on the grid. And now the question is, are you too early? Like, are you so, is it like if nuclear reactors are going to be prolific, like, you know, everywhere in by 2030, that's another seven years, seven years. Building a startup for a lot of years when you don't have customers and don't have feedback, maybe it's too early to build a optimal placement company for nuclear reactors. Maybe. So maybe that's the problem that you should probably wait with. But there are all of these problems that actually, like, you see that the problem isn't now. And that's one of the interesting things that I think a lot of people talk about is, like, what's your unique insight? So, and like, if you have now been working at a grid company, or as a student, you, re- like, did work with grids or whatever, you're, you're starting to think about, where do we place these reactors? And then you have a situation now where you have unique insight. Like, you're thinking about a problem that very few are thinking about. And the crazy thing is like one of the biggest discoveries I think that in in startups in all cases is that the only way you win and the biggest correlation with you winning is you spending all of your brain time and focus and gathering people around you who are spending all of their time on this problem. Yep. So the crazy thing is like you could take any problem, methane capture, which is like infinitely unknown how it works, right? Or where to replace nuclear reactors, which is feels very, very early right now. And if you take that problem and you say, I'm going to, we're going to be a group of four people. We're going to spend all our time doing that. Well, if you're trying to capture methane, probably you need some background in this area because it's going to be hard for you to crunch like 20 years of chemistry and physics and stuff from nowhere. And I think that's the thing is I think that many people, they look at their CV and their LinkedIn or whatever, and they say, I'm not a Riffin or I'm not a Ravenclaw. But then you have to remember that that's a fucking hat that told you they're a Ravenclaw.
1: Because you, you see what you're doing, like an example of the fighter pilot, you see that you're a fighter pilot and you can fly a plane, you can deal with the software. But it's kind of, it feels like it's the first layer. And then there's like the, the second layer skills behind it. Yeah, because that's the, that's the thing I think is so
0: crazy. I think that, like, I think it's so fascinating that somebody says, like, how do you become a venture capitalist? And then I think that if I told you what a venture capitalist does every day, it sounds like, like, you know, friends that do this in, like, they did this in high school. Like, we're hyper curious people that try to meet super ambitious, amazing people, try right, to figure out what's going on in their minds. And then we're trying to figure out the problem they're trying to solve and assess how much that works with very limited knowledge. But the funny thing is, like, when you tell people how a day looks, people are like, but it sounds like the skills you're having and the days you're having is like, it's impossible to learn. Like, how do you learn? Like, this is impossible. What school do you go to? What's your education? Did you work as, a, like, as another fund before? You just have to be in the room. You have to spend the hours. No. Yep. So the thing is that, how do you actually understand what a great startup looks like? Well, just be around startups. How do you know what a great investment look like? Do a podcast about great investments. Let's like be in the room where it happens. And then the other thing is spend the hours. You got to find the thing that you're willing to pin in all the hours on. Now you have to just figure out how to become good at it. And you might do that become crunching the hours or some of these things as well, you need to find that PhD in the subject and work with them on the whiteboard. Like it's going to be too hard for you to just accelerate your learning 20 years and understand small filaments and molecules, and whatever. You are going to get okay with it, you're going to get to the point where I got where I can feign man back the story to you and you're like, yeah, that, that's kind of it. that yeah. You kind of get it. But I won't be able to kind of push the boundaries. But I can maybe see things that other people can't see. I think that's the big misconception. People think that they're going to be like, I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm going to do a Ravenclaw startup. No, that's not true.
1: Um, Essentially, in a capitalistic world, you still have some responsibility to get a return for, yeah. your, uh, yes. for your limited partners. Yes. So you can't exclusively invest into those high-risk, high-reward, long-term... Oh, you
0: government. could. Oh, you yeah. could, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you could. No, no, absolutely, you could. Um, I think you could build a fund that only invests in Fusion if you wanted. Uh, I think that the thing is that... So you can
1: have like a 15 to 20-year
0: timeline. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's really about... Uh, the, the funny thing about venture funds is that venture funds, it's a it's a quote-unquote product you're selling. So like we have said something to our investors, our LPs, limited partners. We have said, this is what we're going to do. And they have said, okay, I'm going to take that calculator risk and give you money. And yeah. we think you're going to give us this kind of multiple money with this kind of risk profile, with this kind of time horizon. So it's like, they're looking at it and saying, if they say, okay, so it's going to take 40 years, but we think we're going to give you hundred times the money back. And they think that it's like a 20% chance that this to happen. That's a good expected value.
1: Well, then that fund would still need to be appropriately sized. And, like, yeah, guess, yeah. no, you, exactly. and you exactly so, your management fees. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, from yeah. exactly. Okay. So
0: the thing is, that's so funny about it. It's like, it is like you're designing a vehicle to do something. You're designing a little machine. when you are designing a fund. So like you're designing the fund and saying, we will, every single Fusion investment will need 10 million from us to get to the point where they can raise that massive round, right? And then they will need, uh, let's say that uh, we are going to invest in 20 Fusion companies and it's going to work. We're gonna be able to do that in 10, like in five years, let's okay. say. And then after that, the our part is gone. So to say we don't have to do anything actively, but we think that um, like half of the companies will half of the company will fail, it won't work. And then the other half will need a bit of extra money to actually prove that it works. So let's allocate 15 million uh, per company that succeeds and 10 for the ones that fail. You do the math. And then you say, and then every company that raises a new round, that like a big new round, that is not just we bridge them and give them the five million more, um, we want to put an equal amount of money in them because that would be smart just mathematically, we calculate risk return for us. And we say, okay, so that means that all the winners would need 30. And then all the ones that fail need 10. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now you look at our salaries over, okay, we're going to work full time with a team of four people and then four advisors. Okay. Over five years. And then the coming three years, we need one person to just maintain, to kind of, you know, ask for reports and write reports every year and then uh, like you know ask for money from investors and put yeah. it in when they have new rounds okay so we just did the math the budget we realize okay so we're going to need another three million euros to handle that salaries so when you calculate the management fee and we say that this is what the management fee in the active period we get x amount of money and in the passive period we get x amount of money this is it and now we're packaged as, at like a slide deck or whatever you want to do and then you tell people do you want to invest this is a 200 million, I don't know the math now, maybe I'm yeah. completely off, maybe I'm off by, like, something big here, but you need a 200 million uh, euro fund, and we, we're only going to invest in Fusion, we're going to invest in this kind of thing, and now people look at this and say, I like it, that's cool, I'm going to do it, or they say, mm, don't like it, this yeah. is not interesting.
1: And how do you do it here?
0: So, we, we invest in, like, a, a, a kind of a range. So like we do everything, we have done some part, some companies that we think are gonna take longer time that are gonna be higher risk, high return. Mm-hmm. And there are some companies which we think that are very quick to the market and solve a problem very quickly.
1: So do you have specific funds for them
0: no, respectively? No, no, them? no, this is something that, we, again, we communicate to our LPs and we explain that what we think, no. and we're trying to be super transparent and really explain to them. But the thing that, that one of the big complications of this is, and this is a big belief for of me, of like, I don't really believe in macroeconomy, I believe in, in game theory. like. <laughs> I believe that it's bottom up, not top down. So like, I think at the end of the day, you're walking into Las Vegas or Monte Carlo, whatever you did, and then you get to black black deck tables. The only thing you can change that you can decide if you want to go into Monte Carlo or if you want to go into Macau. So like you can say, we only want to do fusion. So like, where is the higher probability of finding fusion people? That's one. And then you can of course change how much you learn about ducks and, and lizards or whatever. So you can like, we want to know more about fusion. And that's kind of what we want to do. And then you can build a machine, like you can build the logistics of the fund and try to figure out how many advisors do we need, how many companies we need to meet, and so on and so forth. So the thing is, at the end of the day, you're trying to kind of build a rational why this would work, and you go, and then you go out fishing. For the fund. No, 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 sorry. You go out fishing for the companies. Well, you go out okay. fishing for the fund, yeah. but what I mean is like, the headache is you can have a design that says they're going to invest in a thousand fusion companies um, with like all the math sounds, like you're going, to, you're going to get them technology readiness forward, like if it works, blah, blah, and the logic. The problem is like your assumption that you're going to invest in a thousand fusion companies is probably wrong because there probably aren't a thousand fusion companies. No. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you you just have to try to figure out your own assumptions. So like if you're saying, I think that how we're...
1: Many, how many people are there that A, you want to invest in it? How many companies are
0: there? Exactly. Know, and we're just trying to and, and how big the problem is, how big... Because at the end of the day, let's say that you're going to invest in a thousand... Let's say there will be a thousand fusion companies. Well, fusion is a bad problem, but let's say that. Let's keep it fusion. If you say that we're going to invest in a thousand fusion companies one of the things that quickly happens there is like you're going to start investing in clear competitors obviously so now the problem is like will will you be able to build a relationship with these founders where they will be okay with you investing competitors that's one problem the other problem is like just the market size problem fusion might be big enough but you might actually have a problem where you actually start competing with yourself not only with the founders are going to say well you're competing with us, you actually might mess up your own market because if you create a thousand fusion companies and they all work if it's as early as
1: right now for fusion wouldn't that be more hedging i know, no. hedging than I know like
0: i know no no but there is actually a funny aspect there could be like i agree with you like it's a very like theoretical example here but there could be a situation where you're going to saturate the market yourself okay so like if you take an easier example than fusion let's say that you want to do plant-based beef okay. So then suddenly you have a situation where you invest in so many companies that the margin, that you're going to create competition between them, which they're going to hate you for. Number two, now you've also created that um, because of competition, the margins of them are going to be lower. So problem, you just messed up your own investments by doing too many in one kind. Mm-hmm. So like all of these assumptions, you just try to write them down and try to figure out like, how many are there? Where do you find them? And what, you know, how big the market and so forth? No. And the thing is that, of course, that everything is going to be guesswork. But I think that what I really like it's like i was once on a panel uh where with a danish person that i didn't like at all and he said one thing it was so amazing i really loved um he, he was asking so can i get a what is the hockey stick look like for this company he said and, and i just like i hated that because you can easily make a hockey stick like you just draw the numbers you you like you it's put your multiple in you just scale it and it looks like hockey stick. and the founders were like you know back and forth and mumbling a bit about it and like they couldn't make a hockey stick like that was it and i was sitting there thinking it's fine and then this danish guy said If you can't make a hockey stick in Excel, you can never make it in reality. And I was like, that's profound. He was not after. He didn't believe the hockey stick would work. Yeah. But if you can't make it in Excel, you can't make it at all. So you have to be able to model a world when it works and you write down your assumptions, then you can like, okay, so it works under these scenarios. Do I think those scenarios are likely? But if you can't even write a scenario where it works, well, it won't work. Then
1: it's going to be chance. I think that's a, a good final sentence. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. This is great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to meet Hampus, together with his fund Pale Blue Dot, he's organizing a climate event in Malmö in early September called The Drop. Additionally, he's also a speaker at the Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen just a week after The Drop. A link to both events you can find in the show notes. If you want to hear more interviews, subscribe to Deep Tech Stories wherever you listen to a podcast, or follow me on Twitter. You'll be hearing back from me soon when I interview Sama CEO Rand Hindi about holomorphic encryption.